This is Dustin Garrick for the In Common Podcast. In this episode, I speak with Dr. Samia Balasubramania, Senior Economist at the World Bank, based with its global environmental practice, and the current chair for the Committee for Women in Agricultural Economics as part of the International Association of Agricultural Economists. Somia is trained as a development economist, going straight from her PhD at Duke to work on a host of applied research projects at the intersection of environment, poverty, and development across Asia and Africa. Before joining the bank in 2022, Dr. Balasubramania spent 10 years at the International Water Management Institute, IMI, a part of the consultative group on international agricultural research, rising to its group leader in economics. Her work has demonstrated extraordinary range and rigor. In her own words, she describes her goal as advancing knowledge on the fractal vulnerabilities faced by the poor. This work has spanned from her PhD research on groundwater arsenic in Bangladesh to applied projects examining the role of gender and social identity in agricultural and water supply and sanitation. In recent work, she uses econometric methods and choice experiments to examine the sustainability and poverty implications of groundwater development for irrigation across Asia. We discuss this sweep of work in three major parts. We start with the spark for becoming a development economist and what it means to think like an economist in terms of evidence and connections to other fields. We continue by exploring why we know so little about key topics in water, agriculture, and development. We discuss why it's important to learn from failure, taking a deep dive into India's groundwater management and the uneven successes of policy experiments with energy pricing reforms and solar irrigation. We conclude by discussing the insights for early career researchers seeking to work in development and what it is like to work at large development organizations in this path. We had a great time in the discussion and I hope you enjoy it. Well, thank you, Samya, for joining us. It's uh, such a pleasure to have you. Oh, it's nice to be here, Dustin. Thank you for asking me. <laughs> of course. I, I really wanted to start off um, by understanding the spark that brought you to work on uh, all the issues related to water, agricultural, and poverty. Uh, looking at your bio on the website, I was really struck by the intersectionality of the issues that you work on. And um, the this term of that I love here is that you focus on understanding the fractal vulnerabilities faced by the poor, really leaning into that complexity. So how did you arrive at this work? What was the kind of spark that brought you to, uh, to become an economist uh, working in this space? <laughs> it's a, uh, you know, somebody has asked me this question before, and uh, it, it's, it's it's an interesting. I think I'm an accidental economist. I mean, I I kind of I don't think I s- started out with any sort of desire to be one or anything like that. You know, um, I think when I was younger, what I really wanted to do, wanted to be was either an anthro. I mean, I didn't know that that's what they were called. I was interested in volcanoes, which is, I think, what geologists study, presumably. And I was interested in sort of uh, archaeology, right? And to become an archaeologist, I think it's just inspired by Indiana Jones and adventure movies and all that kind of stuff, right? And nobody around me could really tell me how one became either of those. Uh, And that just speaks to sort of, you know, the kind of subculture that I grew up in where everybody is either a doctor or an engineer. Mm. And, and, you know, the occasional physicist and mathematician, but <laughs> that's about it. And so, so when I, so, 
so nobody could really tell me you know like what are you going to do you know how are you going to become an archaeologist who's going to give you a job what does that even mean volcanoes there are no volcanoes in india what are you going to study so it's that kind of stuff right and so i i think uh, i kind of i ended up doing economics more as a sort of i knew what i didn't want to do i didn't want to be a doctor i didn't want to be an engineer and i couldn't figure out how to be any of these other things and okay this seems oh, I don't hate it I'll study it so I think that's kind of how it how it ended up sort of that's how it started and then I think a couple things happened you know I sort of I did an internship in the summer you know just when I was finishing up an undergrad degree in India and that kind of sparked some interest where I saw how your, under, your uh, undergrad was in economics as well yeah yeah my undergrad was in economics in India and so uh you know and then I um uh, sort of, you know, say, oh, this is how you can apply some of this stuff to practical life and policy situations. And I think that's kind of what got me interested. And then I went and got a master's degree, which was also in India. I went, I studied at the Delhi School of Economics. And then, um, the, and at that time, I ended up sort of, the bank, the World Bank actually at that time was doing an evaluation of joint forestry management. Uh, you know, the, there's a joint forestry management program in India, which they had implemented and financed back in the day. And they were doing an evaluation to see whether the interventions that they had implemented had worked or not. Were they actually poverty alleviating? Had the forests been improved, et cetera, or not? Uh, I ended up being an enumerator for that for that survey, sort of uh, the big survey that was taking place in central India. And that's when I kind of figured out, oh, I like doing this kind of stuff. And that's kind of where it kind of started from. And then I went and got a PhD at Duke. And that's what I do. I mean, I'm an environment and development economist and all my work is survey-based. It's primary data-based, um, uh, very much field-based work where I sort of think about not just what works, but I think most of my research is really around why things fail and why things don't work. Um, and what are the barriers towards making you know, when good solutions on paper don't necessarily, you know, end up being the same way on the ground, why and what do we need to understand better or do differently? So operating in the world of the second or the third best, even though you're trained to think about the first best, <laughs> is kind of what I do. <laughs> so yeah, that's kind of how it all began. <laughs> oh, that's really interesting. We're going to dig into why uh, things fail and, and all the insights from your em empirical work. Before we do, you mentioned this experience. I hadn't realized that uh, you're working for the bank now and yeah. you got your start as an enumerator working uh, on a, a bank <laughs> project. Um, but tell me about the training you got in Delhi in economics and how you learned it and, and how that compared with your experience as an enumerator. I mean, the, going from the textbook into reality, basically. Yeah. So I think, I mean, you know, economic theory is what it is. I mean, you know, um, there are a number of people who would say, and I think it's a fair thing to say that, you know, all this economic theory is so abstract, people don't necessarily behave this, you know, people are not necessarily rational, people's, you know, preferences aren't complete or transitive, you know, there's limited knowledge, you know, and, you know, is profit maximization really what people are motivated by? Do people behave rationally? All of these are fair criticisms to make. But in the defense of economic theory, I don't think it's meant to be the gospel truth or meant to be uh, the basis on which decisions, the only basis on which decisions should be made. Economic theory at one level, I feel, is the, it's, it's a caricature of some part of the truth. And I think where economic theory is practically very helpful is as a gatekeeper. So while it is true that things that 
economic theory suggests would happen may not happen in the real world because of the assumptions that theory makes. And by the way, all theory in every discipline makes assumptions. But I think where economic theory is incredibly powerful is if, if theory tells you that something is not likely to happen or something might be a bad idea or have unintended consequences, that almost always happens on the ground. So it's an excellent gatekeeper. And so I think for those who are interested in practical work, what works on the ground and why things fail, I think theory becomes extremely important to make sure that we don't succumb to what I call truthisms. Just because we hope something is true doesn't mean it is, right? We might hope that, you know, oh, I could put some kind of a payment for ecosystem solutions on the ground because economic theory tells me that it would work and, you know, oh, somehow this, this ends up becoming a great thing in a context of, yes, in the context of the United States, sure, that might be fine. It's a very different landscape. But, you know, theory on all of this was set in the context of the United States. The minute you sort of move into an India or a Vietnam or somewhere else, you know, the transaction costs of putting these sorts of programs into place are extremely high. There is, you're doing it in places where there's rampant poverty where, poverty, where property rights are not even defined. How do you compensate people in ways that is fair, equitable, just? Actually, theory would actually tell you you shouldn't probably be doing it. And there's no reason to believe that any of this would reduce poverty because PES as an economic instrument was not created to reduce poverty. It was simply created in order to protect environmental rights in the Western hemisphere. So I think that's where economic theory becomes really helpful. I think it's very useful to sort of take a step back and say, wait a minute, if theory tells us this is not likely to take, why would we expect it to happen in real life? So I think it's a great gatekeeper. And so, uh, and I think that's kind of what I saw when I went sort of from being a student to doing this enumeration work for the bank <clears throat> when I was a student that this is sort of the power of theory and this is the power of what you learn in 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 the um in in the class it's not it's not necessarily to say oh because theory tells us x we should do y it's really well theory also tells us there are all these risks and unintended consequences and that's the stuff that's really powerful and that's what we need to be focusing on so yeah i think i think that's those that's my two cents on that Okay, well, I want to stop myself from rushing ahead to uh, some of the work you've been doing in, in India and uh, across Africa and Asia recently in the space of water, agriculture, and poverty, because I, I wanted to hear a bit about your transition into the PhD and what you did your research on. Yeah, sure. I, I, I got my PhD at Duke, so I was, I was at the School of Environment, and uh, it's, a, it's a great program to be in. It's a, I mean, when you train as an economist, you train as a neoclassical Economist, there's no getting around that. But the advantage of training as a neoclassical economist, there is a rigor. There is it, there is a lot of rigor in the training, and you know, just in the way you're, you're you're taught to think. But the advantage of doing that in a in a in a school of environment or a school of public policy, as 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 opposed to let's say a department of economics, um, or a department of applied economics for that matter, is that schools of environment or international development or public policy tend to draw. Uh, ideas, material, and inspiration from other disciplines as well, because you're all housed under the same roof, working on similar problems, but from different disciplinary perspectives. So you end up hearing a lot of 
on what the ecologists have to say, what the geographers have to say, what the you know what the sociologist has to say, um, what a what a geochemist has to say, because they're working on these problems too. And I think the kinds of questions that you end up asking are not always focused on efficiency, which is what economics narrowly focuses on. So I think if you were to go to a department of economics, you would be taught to focus on efficiency, which is the first best, right? And so, and if you go to these other schools you still learn to be an economist. Of course, you're going to be taught efficiency, but you end up often being motivated by these other questions beyond efficiency, and you tend to ask more of those types of questions. Especially- if I jump right there in terms yeah. of the, the focus on efficiency, because uh, my sense from your work is it's, it's really also driven by uh, equity and poverty and yes. uh, really the, the, the challenge, uh, the development challenge of, of alleviating poverty. Did you get support for that training up front through your PhD, or did you have to kind of do that at the margins? I think my training was a mix of both. So I knew that I wanted to learn sort of the methods of what's called microeconometrics. So I use a method. So methodologically, I do a mix of sort of causal inferences coupled with non-market valuation and environmental economics, but because I collect my own data and, you know, sort of collect data based on hypotheses that I want to test. So I designed my own studies. I'm also a microeconometrician. And the reason I did, and I sort of learned those particular sets of skills was because I knew that I wanted to work in developing countries. I, that, that's where I wanted to be. And as you know, data in developing countries is pretty poor, especially secondary sources of data. And so if you really want to ask these interesting questions, you're going to have to learn to you know, design your own studies and collect your own data. And I think the minute you start working in developing countries, by definition, you have to end up focusing on things beyond efficiency. Efficiency is a very first world, first world thing. And I'm not saying it does not have any relevance in low and middle income countries, but the problems in low and middle income countries are different, right? Poverty is a distributional problem. And it's a distributional problem that's coming to a large extent because of history and the fact that history isn't Markovian. You end up by definition having to, you know, end up by definition focusing on things beyond just efficiency. Having said that, efficiency, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to say that it, 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 it has no role to play in the low and middle income world, but but you know, it's at a different state of state of being and a different state of state of affairs. And that by definition, I think ends up, you know, uh, motivating you to go in that direction because that's where the pressing questions are and so i think my training kind of gave me both uh the textbook you know the classes and the more uh structured material that you learn in courses etc would have focused largely on efficiency uh but you know you end up working with a with a committee you end up kind of you know thinking about what your dissertation is going to be like. And on that, I had a whole bunch of people who were very much focused on things like poverty and, and distribution. And where did you do your project uh, for your It was in Bangladesh. So my dissertation was on arsenic in drinking water in Bangladesh. And I was sort of on my, and my dissertation was a mix of sort of environmental economics, non-market valuation, and a whole bunch of behavioral economics, actually. But I was looking at it's sort of, it's not what you tell people, but how you tell people what you tell them and whether how you deliver the message has a differential responses on um, risk avertive decisions uh, that lower people's exposure to to arsenic in drinking water. And so I I did a randomized control 
trial, you know, because it, it's kind of the holy grail for all economists these days. You have to do at least one if you're if you call yourself an empirical economist. You know, more power to Esther for that one. But anyway, so uh, well, why Esther? Let's let's single out Abhijit as well. Let's not just single put Esther out. Uh, <laughs> so I did one of those, and then but I also did sort of. Uh, longitudinal work where I was collecting data over time to look at how risk risk responses change over time, right? Because if you have to, if your well has arsenic, very high levels of arsenic and it's deemed undrinkable, you have to stop drinking water from your well and walk to a neighbor's well to get it, which means you have to walk more, you have to carry water further, you're socially obliged to your neighbor. So these are expensive actions to take. So how long do you go? I mean, you could do it in the, in the immediate effect because there's a shock of knowing, oh my God, my water is poisonous, but are you going to keep doing this over longer periods of time or does all this behavior just unravel you know, in the short term? Because in Bangladesh, just because of the way arsenic is distributed, um, the the dominant and perhaps the only sensible public policy response at a large scale has been to keep testing is to keep is to test wells for arsenic, and 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 put and label them red or green depending upon whether they're considered drinkable or non-drinkable. And so the question always has been, we provide this information to people, and yes, we see people moving away from their red wells and using the neighbor's wells or you know, their relatives' wells in the short term, but do we see these behaviors continuing over time, or are or, or all the short-term gains just being unraveled over time because it's just laborious doing this, right? And so I looked at some of that, and I actually do find that you no, know, people actually do continue uh, you know, doing this laborious stuff even over time. So people who switch out of using their bad well don't go back to it. And there are some people who don't do it initially, but they do it later because it's just taking them longer to find the suitable alternative because there are search costs involved, right? So those are the kinds of things that I was looking at. And, and, so, the policy, and, and so the policy relevance of that work is really uh, to keep continuing to test wells as new wells keep getting uh, installed because the life of a well in Bangladesh is quite low. Every three to five years, people drill and install new wells. And testing these wells for arsenic is quite cheap. It's like it used to be 20 cents, 20 to 30 cents to test a well. So it's actually the cheapest thing you can do. And so the policy recommendation of that work was that the government should really continue to keep testing wells because it actually does help people, you know, move away from the risks of, uh, move away from these contaminated water sources and you should just keep doing that. It should not just be a one-shot testing, which, which it was at that point in time. Excellent. And before we jump ahead um, to some of the, the other work, uh, it sounds like your um, focus on the behavioral aspects allowed yeah. you to explore your anthropological interests. Uh, you also mentioned search costs, and I've always been uh, impressed with your engagement with the literature on institutions and institutional economics. Did you get any of that in your training, or did you pick it up just because of necessity and practicality? Some of it through training and some of it through necessity and practicality. So that's the advantage of going to one of these interdisciplinary schools, right? So I, 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 I ended up taking courses in political science, I took a course with Meg McKean, I took a course with Erica Weinthal, I took courses in risk regulation in the law school, you know, thinking about countervailing risks, unintended consequences. So I think that's the advantage of going to these multidisciplinary schools. And then you have friends who are doing very different things. And then you go out for a beer and people start talking about different things and you pick up all kinds of stuff and chatter. You know, I shared office space with a political uh, scientist who was also quantitative, who worried about institutions and governance. And so I think, you know, 
sure you just end up, it, you learn a lot from your peers. So I think it's a good thing to talk to people who do different things than what you do. It's amazing. And not just in research, right? Like my sister, she's a, she's a mathematician. Uh, she is a mathematician and she's, a, she's an academic, but she's also a professional dancer. So it's amazing the things that I, I have ended up learning just hanging around her. And because there's a big age difference, I used to drive her to her dancing classes when she was a kid. And so you sit around waiting there for two hours while she finishes doing whatever she's doing and then you pick up all kinds of stuff just because you're there <laughs> captive audience as they say so uh yeah this is so, the this is the anthropologist in you you just say yeah, yes to things and you you learn I, I do and i do i say yes to things i find it very hard to like particularly if it's coming from somebody who's early in their career or you know somebody from a gabon or a ghana who sometimes reaches out and you know i get these messages on linkedin and oh, i'm probably going to get a lot more because of this interview now i have a feeling this is gonna <laughs> yes that's good <laughs> thank you and i'm admitting to it that i do respond so i mean i think it's quite brave right i mean you know like it takes quite a bit of courage to actually write to somebody and say hey by the way do you think i could get 15 minutes of your time to talk to you <laughs> something i know i would never have done it when i was when i was 15 uh, but maybe i didn't need to do it you know, I mean, I, I I do come from privilege, so maybe I didn't need to do it. Maybe that's why I didn't do it. I don't know. It's very hard to it's very hard to know, but I certainly would not have done it. I know that. So I, I quite admire people who have the guts to do it. Well, I will uh, reinforce that. I think we oh, think I walked into this one anyway. <laughs> well, let me let me build on something. I was going to wait for the third act of our discussion, but I'm going to jump in because I think for a lot of people listening to this, uh, they have a picture of an economist and it is uh, maybe one dimension. And uh, and I don't want to be reductionist and suggest that everyone has that view, uh, but 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 oftentimes you know you'll see uh, on Twitter or you'll see in different places uh, other disciplines dunking on economists. Let's put it that way um, by saying, "Oh, these economists don't read outside of their field, and uh, they, they're just discovering something that we've been working on for years." Um, I you know I've been able to interact with a lot of economists who are like you and they're reading widely and collaborating uh, across disciplines and diverse backgrounds and perspectives. I don't know. How do you react when you see um, those kinds of statements? <laughs> um, I don't Is it fair? Don't Let's put it that way. I mean, like everything, I suppose the reality is somewhere in the middle. Uh, you know, I mean, I, it's a, so one, I don't take it personally. I, you know, it's, it's, it's fine. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a big girl. We can, we can take it. I think part of the issue is what is regarded as evidence in different fields is different. I think that's part of where this debate comes from. So I think that understanding of what evidence means differs by disciplines. Mm. I think Part of the issue that has happened, and this is where I do think we need to collectively think about whether this is necessarily a good thing or a bad thing. Because of the way funding to the sciences has changed, all disciplines seem to be under a lot of pressure to somehow say, if, if we funded this little project and this piece of work, how would this inform something practical on the ground? And I think therein lies the problem because I don't think it is just the job of research to immediately lead to something which is practical on the ground. There's a lot of basic research that happens in every discipline. And there's a lot of that basic research that then 
some people somehow come together at the end of the day and bring it together and say, this is what it means for decision-making at that larger scale. So I think those are the two reasons to my mind, at least two reasons that I can think of for why this, this, this tension within the disciplines is, 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 is coming in. That what is evidence is different in different disciplines. And just the, the pressure on everybody to, so, so somehow, you know, I know, I know ethnographers who feel, oh my God, I'm going to stay in a village and, you know, if I have to do real ethnography, you know, you have to immerse yourself there and be there for a few years. And on, on the basis of that, I have to tell a story on why this is practical and relevant to some development process on the ground. And even that ethnographer knows that there is not, not much that they can really say based on, you know, ethnography. I think the power of ethnography is that it, it, it gives us insights about behaviors that then, which are very relevant in and of themselves and to understand processes and channels through which things might be happening. But is that process channel the same across thousands of villages? It's hard to abstract from that one study, right? And any ethnographer would tell you that too. And I think I think that's the pressure that I feel a lot of a lot of the sciences, particularly the non-quantitative ones, are feeling. Mm. I think they're being that's pushed, very interesting. And I think and being pushed to do things that it, it, it's not serving anybody well. And so the power, the actual power that that those narratives have, are being sort of sort of uh, blurred because of this sort of the way the funding for research works right now. And I think that's problematic. That's interesting. I'm, I'm going to bite my tongue in terms of following that because I mean, one of the aspects of your answer is really about the, the types of evidence and the ability to generalize and then how that's used for policy and practice. And those, you know, mechanisms, mechanisms and insights coming from ethnography may be particularly relevant at the scale of the problem and addressing the problem in a very localized setting or part of cross-cultural networks that can start to build comparative insights. And so I think that it's nice that in return, I've you know, had my own opportunities to collaborate with anthropologists who are reaching out from the other direction um, to connect with, um, you know, perspectives and epistemologies coming out of economics and other areas. But I want to bring us kind of... But let me, you know, but let me also say this in, to be fair to the social sciences, the qualitative social sciences, even in quantitative social sciences, such as economics, Scaling up from one sample study to, you know, an entire country is not something we should be doing. And that would be disingenuous too. I do think what quantitative, I, and this is where I get back to the whole thing of studying failure. I think as a quantitative person, I have found in my experience that the study of failure using quantitative methods has a better chance of giving us larger insights and more universal insights than the study of success. I think success can often be quite context specific, but I think failure, I think is more generalizable. All right. Well, you have set the segue perfectly for where we're going to go next, the second act, um, which is to to dig into uh, your empirical work and uh, policy analysis related to a number of issues around water, agricultural, poverty, health, and um, I keep coming back to your your fractal perspective. Um, and I know that you've worked in India. You've mentioned Bangladesh, uh, a number of different places. I want to start with India, just because I think context and grounding will will help us in uh, this next stage of the discussion. 
And in one of your recent papers in food policy, you asked the question, uh, why do we know so little? Yeah, and that was actually a wait, wait, wait. Don't tell me what. Tell me your headline, and then the the, the follow up, so you can start thinking about it in the background. Is what do we know um, in the context of the Indian story around groundwater pumping and groundwater uh, and poverty issues? So give me the headline, um, but but also um, you know, bring us into what do we know before we talk about uh, what we don't. <laughs> <laughs> so the reason why we wrote the paper so so let me also just say and this is really a shout out to chris barrett who i think is a fantastic economist but also just a really good scientist uh so chris uh kind of wrote to me and my co-author david stifle saying you know why don't you guys write something about this about something about water and it came for two reasons one there was this uh, i think previously chris and i had, had this conversation about how agricultural economics and development economics tends to really not focus a lot on water. And, and so part of it was just, it was like a call to arms to, to be able to write that paper. And, and for me, the reason for writing that paper was that within the discipline of economics, so let's not talk about other disciplines, let's just talk about economics itself. Within the discipline of economics itself, you sort of have agricultural economics, development economics, and environmental economics, three sort of camps, if you will. And those three camps tend to focus on very different things when it comes to water itself. So ag economics traditionally takes water as a given input. They don't get into the management of water so much. It's really sort of, you know, given water as an input, how are you optimizing on other inputs and what's going on out there? So traditionally, there's not been much of a story to tell on that front. Environmental economists typically think about managing water. So it's all about prices, quantities, efficiency, sometimes some focus on distribution, but that's also there. It's really more about sort of the, the environment and resource economists really think about that, that question of just managing water and, you know, optimal pathways of extraction and things like that. And in the development economics literature, water comes in mostly in the context of health. And so the idea that you may have to, ma and, and again, uh, the environment and resource economics, there's no talk about poverty, uh, Ag may talk about poverty in developing countries, but not about water so much. And sort of development economics, mostly, you know, it's, it's talking sort of about health and sort of human development indices and things like that. So within the discipline itself, there is this, there is this split. And what that means is for research that looks at how do you manage water uh, in order to sort of effect incomes, poverty, et cetera, the minute you, and this happened to me early in, early on in my career, the minute you go to an ag journal, they'll say, oh, there's too much environment in this. You should go to an environment journal. You go to an environment journal, they say, well, this is poverty. We don't do poverty. Go to a dev, devicon journal. And the devicon will say, well, there's nothing development about this either. This is like most ag, and you should go back to an ag journal. And so you get kind of you know, you're like the orphan child that nobody wants to kind of claim. So, so that was part of my motivation for writing that paper. And so if you see a big chunk of the paper really goes into sort of <laughs> telling economists, you know, maybe we, guys, I mean, you know, it's bad enough we're fighting with the rest of the world. We need to be fighting amongst ourselves too. That's kind of a bit of a, a, a tongue-in-cheek. I mean, we say it a bit more elegantly, but that's kind of what we're getting at there. And so, and of course, we also talk about sort of the whole, the again, when it comes to sort of water, you really can't look at managing any natural resource without understanding how other disciplines think about it or how the biophysical sciences think about it either. And there's just this big difference in-, in And there you kind of go into the efficiency 
paradox. For right, example. but also there's this big terminology issue, right? And the fact that people committed at different levels. So for example, if you think about water, if you talk to an irrigation engineer, an irrigation engineer will basically say, I need to make sure, if I'm going to divert water, I want to make sure that we are able to get as much crop as we can from the fact that we diverted water, right? And I want to reduce these kinds of losses. If you talk to a hydrologist, they'll say, actually, losses are not so, you know, some runoff may happen, but runoff helps with recharge and things like that. And so the problem is everybody's trying to optimize a very different thing, you know, and, and generally the, the natural sciences tend to optimize supply, the social sciences tend to think about demand. So that itself is, is, is one big gap. And then the notion of efficiency There are, I mean, economics fortunately has only one, one definition of efficiency. We can disagree on whether that's, that's the right way to think about it, but for what it's worth, there is just one, you know, notion of it. But other disciplines, for example, in engineering and hydrology, when you start looking at it, there are multiple definitions of irrigation efficiency or 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 even productivity. And and so there is, you know, there is, you know, economists tend to think about marginal productivity, you know, hydrologists, irrigation engineers will think about water productivity, which is an average product, it's not a marginal product. So, so there's all kinds of sort of differences in terminology and of course measurement. We can't measure the things we want to measure, right? Because telemetry on water is poor. All that remote sensing gets you is really evapotranspiration. It doesn't really tell you anything about how much of water was applied on the ground in the field. So we don't often, you know, we can't measure what we want to measure. And so the combination of that means that, you know, some of the things that we really want to understand are things that we can't really understand very well. And we're proxying for it in other ways. And so, uh, you know, we do need sort of, you know, better data, clever ways to collect data. Uh, so, for example, you know, talking about India, talking about groundwater, and everybody sort of knows that there is this, I think India is the largest user of groundwater and agriculture in the world. It's, uh, we have, I think, probably more than 20 million, all private tube wells and everybody's kind of pulling out water, you know, whichever they want, what, whatever they like. And nobody really knows how much water, and, and we know that water tables are falling from the monitoring wells that are there, but you know, to even get a handle on how much of water is actually being pulled out and moved around even in a season is impossible. And because we don't have good data on this, it leads to all kinds of challenges, including in the policy space. So for example, you know, as Indian, you know, India, different states in India, as you know, are worrying about what do they do in order to just reduce abstraction of groundwater and putting prices on water or increasing prices on electricity is not politically feasible. It may not also be practically implementable. Do you mind if we take up, um, uh, you know, sure. a little bit more time to unpack the Indian groundwater story? So post green revolution, the you know, the, the expansion of private tube wells, energy subsidies, the kind yeah. of story of lifting out of poverty, the the kind of dynamics of that over time. Um, I, I think it'd be nice to set the scene on this issue in part because it's taken me reading and rereading and I still feel like I don't know what I don't know uh, when it comes to the experience as well as the heterogeneity of the experience across India. I mean, before we kind of dig into what we can learn from failure, it'd be Nice to hear a little more about what was happening and what you think has been failing, so to speak. Sure. So, I mean, groundwater in India, sort of, there are surface water schemes in, 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 in India, but groundwater was really sort of encouraged. Uh, the extraction of groundwater was encouraged by, by governments, uh, you know, in the sort of the 60s, starting in the 60s, so that it's just very expensive to supply 
water through surface water irrigation schemes to every farmer. It's just really hard to do that. It's very these systems are expensive to maintain, and you know there are all kinds of distributional problems in these big surface irrigation schemes, command schemes as they call you know where there's a canal and it's diverting water from a river and it's getting it across to a, an agricultural area. So essentially the government uh, ended up, uh, different, different state governments and government of India also, uh, ended up installing public wells and showing people how to drill wells in different parts of the country. And then they subsidized pumps and, and well drilling as well. And that just took off. So there was a whole groundwater sort of quote unquote revolution where individual small farmers ended up installing their own tube wells. Uh, of course, who installs these tube wells is not it's not random. Uh, among the small farmer category, better off small farmers will obviously install them and smaller farmers, farmers who have, you know, smaller land holdings, maybe, you know, may, may do it later or may not do it at all because they still can't afford to do it. So uh, the upshot was that there are like literally more than 20 million tube wells in India that are all privately, have all been privately installed. They're not, none of them is metered for water, depending upon what state you might be in in India, some of them might be metered for electricity if they're running on electricity, but a lot of these pumps run on diesel mm -hmm. as well. Um, and so there is no doubt that this use of groundwater was probably a very important component for the green revolution in India. But it's a resource and as you use that resource and as more and more people have used that resource, there is, of course, drawdown of the water table. And as climate change is making, you know, rainfall erratic, recharge is increasingly becoming a problem. And so this is a depleting water resource across India. The extent of the problem varies depending upon whether you're in the eastern part of India or the western part of India, what kind of aquifer you're on, et cetera. But in general, this is a, this is a problem Across India, it's more severe, especially in the north and in the west. It's starting to become increasingly severe in the peninsula. So these are all different geologies. And in the east, where we're talking more about West Bengal, Orissa, the extent of the problem is probably not so severe because these are alluvial aquifers, alluvial soils, different kinds of aquifers. But again, if you talk to groundwater department folks in these places, they'll tell you that things are not as hunky-dory as they used to be 25, 30 years ago. Things are changing there too. So it's a problem. If for some, it's already a crisis. For others, this is an emerging problem. Let's put it that way. Mm. So the big question is, how do you, what do you do, right? This is such an important resource and how do you address this problem? And typically the way you might address this problem is you could say, oh, let's price groundwater. That's impossible to do. How do you put water meters on 20 million tube wells and new ones keep popping up all the time and old ones, you know, are sort of thrown out and, or, you know, they're deepened and all kinds of things happen. Yeah. And how do you monitor all of this stuff, both from a practical perspective and from a political perspective? It's very hard introducing something when there's been 65 years of not doing anything to regulate it, right? Nobody's, it, 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 like, that's what I mean. Like, policy today is not Markovian. It has to be in the context of what's happened in history. So, uh, so uh, pricing water, metering wells for water is hard. Most of these, all these, wells, tube wells as they're called, they function on some form of energy. If it's electricity, electricity has typically been subsidized through history. So farmers get electricity at pretty low costs. In some cases, like in the state of Punjab, it's free. And, you know, electricity is rationed, so you might get it for a few hours, but, you know, you don't have to pay for it. And if it's diesel, 
with the exception of West Bengal, diesel for agriculture is, I think, subsidized in most places in India. Hmm. And as you can imagine, these are major subsidy burdens on the on the federal budget. I think the energy subsidy is huge in the Indian budget area. It's really yeah, like an order of magnitude in terms of. I don't know the numbers off my top of my head, but it's massive. It's big. Yeah. I mean, utilities and you know, you I mean electric utilities, especially in states which provide electricity at very low prices, are going bankrupt. I mean, wow. have been in bankruptcy for a very long time. This, hmm. The subsidy burden is massive. And of course, because it's free, it leads to all kinds of extraction issues, right? You don't have to pay for it. So, you know, people, you waste it. You don't really think so much about how you're using it, et cetera. The, you know, the, the short-term and immediate consequences towards wasteful use is zero. And so, and, and, the, so, and so the history of it is such that it's very hard pricing water. It's very hard putting caps on what people do, introducing some sort of a, you know, oh, why don't we give everybody a right to water and then we'll penalize them if they go about it. It's neither politically feasible nor economically feasible. The transaction costs of implementing something like that would be massive. It's just not worth the while. And so the emphasis has been on carrots rather than sticks. So it's really around how can we motivate desirable behavior. And so, so some of the things that are happening at the moment is, for example, there are all these pilot projects that are going on in different parts of India in places where electric, electric pumping is what, and it's electricity that's used to pull water out of the ground. Why don't we instead give the farmer an entitlement of electricity? And if they uh, use less than their entitlement, we'll purchase that back from the farmer at some price because the cost of supplying electricity and the cost, if, if the farmer actually used that unit of electricity, the cost of the utility is more than the farmer not using electricity and the utility just buying it back. So the utility will still be in a loss, but the extent of losses is lower. And the farmer is no, no worse off, right? You can use the electricity, you can use your entire, entire entitlement, there are no penalties to even exceeding the entitlement, but if you use less than your entitlement, you at least get paid something for it too. And so they're experimenting with these kinds of sort of positive incentives, as we call them, to see if that might sort of induce changes in behavior. And so I can think of at least two such schemes that have happened. I think that this is being experimented in different parts in India. Mm. So one of the places where it's happened is in Northern Gujarat, and the other one is in Punjab. And, and both of these have been studied and written up, which is why we sort of know a little more about them. Uh, and in both places, a similar approach was tried. And, you know, it, it, the, the, the sort of the, the, the incentives, that were, you know, the scheme worked in Punjab in the sense that it did reduce uh, the extraction of groundwater and the use of electricity, but it didn't do the same in Gujarat. And the question is why and, well, you know, what explains those differences, right? Mm. And this is where the importance of data comes in and why lack of good data can have serious implications for policy solutions on the ground. Mm. So one of the things that a number of us know, uh, at least those who study it, but which surprisingly many others don't know or don't think about, is that there is a lot of informal selling of water in India. So for a farmer who owns a pump, they often end up selling irrigation services to smaller farmers who don't own their own pumps. 
at some and this payment can either be in the form of money it can be in exchange for a share of harvest it could be in exchange for labor there are different ways in which the payment happens but there is this informal water market as it's called and i use the mark term market here very loosely i just mean there's a buyer and a seller and a service that's being traded it, it doesn't mean anything beyond that so in gujarat northern gujarat there is a very active water market so not only is each pump owned by seven or eight farmers the pump also ends up irrigating the farms of those who don't own the pump either in exchange for a fee so in gujarat if you were northern gujarat if you were to try to implement this incentive scheme you run into two problems first there's a collective action problem on the between the owners of the pump themselves right because the pump is not owned by one person it's owned by a bunch of people who are using it to irrigate their fields and then they're selling water to others who are not shareholders in the pump so you have an informal market and a collective action problem around the pump mm. in punjab on the other hand you don't have an informal water market because every plot so not just every farm a farm is a collection of plots which may or may not be contiguous in punjab every plot has its own pump and that's because of the history of the green revolution there and so you don't run into a collective action problem and you don't have a water market and so the scheme ends up working in punjab but it doesn't end up working in north gujarat for exactly that for ex- for these two reasons and it's amazing to me that this larger institutional perspective against which the scheme would be implemented was not necessarily taken into consideration when piloting it right because any was right there what was um, were decision makers aware of the market but ign- ignoring it uh hard to under- say. i think it's very hard to say i think it's really hard to know but what we do know for example is like if you look at systematic data on ground on these informal markets right what we know about these informal markets is coming from research studies studies right. like yours root mines and decks you know uh, other democracies done some work on this stuff too uh marishal adbuzon and amy i mean it you know tushar there are a lot of people who worked on this navroz dubash i mean there's a number of folks who've done work on this right but these are coming from you know a village a few districts even quantitative studies like we've done some in bengal these are still sample studies this is not systematic data across india right which is really what i think we need to understand and it's a bit of a pity because india collects it does a minor irrigation census and it does a national sample survey of for agriculture every 5 years can we, and can we pause on this because i'm 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 really trying to grapple with this issue in a lot of different discussions and i I'm struggling to understand and and you mentioned Naros Dubash to well capitalism to Sharshah Damian the anarchy this is 20 years 30 years 40 years of studies that have focused on these informal markets I, I find it hard to believe that policymakers are unaware of the presence of these markets I don't think they're unaware of the presence of these markets but I I don't know whether it really enters the policy discourse or the implications that this might have is it because of a stigma around that uh that that you know it's seen as something that should be you know swept away uh or I don't think so I think it may just be that people are not connecting the dots Okay 
I think so. I think it may just be an inability to connect the dots, or it could also be, and in part, maybe we as researchers are, may also be collectively responsible for this because maybe we haven't made enough of a noise that says, you know, guys, if you're, you know, we know that these water markets are there, and you know, if you try to implement these kinds of policy measures to, in order to curtail groundwater, either you know it may not take, or it may have unintended consequences. Like for example. You know, in the short run, I may say, hey, I've got to give water to my, you know, my sort of my my brother's friend's son because I'm socially, you know, he's I sell water to him and I can't stop selling water to him. So sorry, I'm not going to sell electricity back to the utility. But over time, I might actually raise the price of the service itself that I charge from this guy because I could always say, look, I could sell it back to the utility. Right. So we don't know what the welfare implications of these kinds of schemes are over time. In part because they're new, and in part we just don't know. So one way to, I think, just get better data on this would be, you know, I mean, the the I feel like the uh, the the irrigation, the minor irrigation census, which anyway collects data on do you own a well, do you purchase water, you know, just beef it up a bit more to get systematic data from across the entire country because it's it's implemented everywhere. And there is a political years. economy angle to that in terms of you know the responses to the survey and whether people will feel comfortable divulging they participate in these markets at the source of their water is coming from private tube wells. I've read in some cases that there is a kind of political economy of monitoring and that there's a worry if you admit to it, then it becomes regulated, then it becomes, you know, cut off or any of these kinds of issues. So there may be, I think there may be, and I don't think we know enough about this. And I, but I do think we need to do a better job of trying to collect this data in some way. The NSSO is the other place where this could happen, you know, where, because they collect information on agriculture, agricultural inputs, they collect some information on irrigation, you know, adding eight, 10 questions, which says, do you sell water? Do you buy water? It's going to be impossible to, to I mean, getting quantities is hard because it's, there's no meter. Nobody really knows. They'll tell you, you know, the number of people they sell to, you know, they'll tell you maybe I sold water so many times in a season. And there's a lot of measurement around these responses. We know that. But I think it would just be interesting to know the extent to which these markets are active and how they might be changing over time as well, right? Because just the landscape of agriculture itself is changing. Who's who's entering, who's exiting. People don't necessarily cultivate every year. There's sort of this in and out movement into agriculture. So I think just there's an opportunity to collect some really good systematic data on this at fairly low cost. And I and it would be great to see that opportunity, you know, not not just being sort of, you know, squandered away. So I think it's things like this that sometimes just escape attention. You know, it's mm. out there and yet policy misses it sometimes, right? And so I think I think it's drawing attention to these connections, these that, that, that's really going to be key. Okay, well, I want to um, build directly on that and maybe just invite those listening um, to take up this issue of thinking about creative ways uh, to track the evolution of these markets and capture this data, whether it's through um, the census, the survey, uh, or through you know, unexpected means. It could be the payment platforms and ways of tracking transactions that um, I think can can generate some leapfrog opportunities. But um, but I agree with you. Uh, this is, you're preaching to the choir. We need to get the data and then we need to use that to better understand um, how these 
these policies are working in different contexts. And what your story reminds me of is this longstanding debate and discussion in the literature on uh, institutions for collective action. Um, there was a call by Eleanor Ostrom and colleagues to move beyond panaceas and panacea thinking, you know, what the first best or optimal policies would look like. And what you've just described to me kind of sounds like a... Um, uh, a cocktail of panaceas, right? You've got <laughs> pricing uh, of and and these uh, energy entitlements coming alongside the uh, the existence of the informal markets, and it's the synergistic effects that we don't really understand. So I wanted to invite you to share a little bit about your work uh, in the recent paper in Journal of Development Studies, uh, where you've examined this issue and talk about how you, you know what you found, what, how you went about that study, uh, because I think. It does what you describe in the food policy paper of taking a kind of multidimensional optimization perspective. You're looking at multiple outcomes. You're looking at multiple aspects, uh, and I wanted to, you know, you know, invite you to share a little bit more about that work. Sure. So that's again, I mean, that's an interesting paper in the sense that we look at a number of different things and really look at trade-offs. I mean, and you know, what's happening out there. So this is this this is set in a very different context in West Bengal, where Historically, oddly, West Bengal has sort of been different from the rest of the country. Uh, energy in agriculture has never been subsidized. And historically, it used to be very hard to even install a tube well because you had to go through a whole series of permissions and permits in order to be able to even install a tube well. So there's always been, um, there was every, there was good reason uh, to, in order to relax these laws and allow make it a bit easier for people to actually to be able to irrigate. And that took place, um, you know, sometime in the mid 2000s. And I, think I may be getting the dates a little wrong right now. The, the thing about writing all these papers is you kind of remember the big pieces and you forget these details. And it's funny, I was actually going through my own work before you are talking to me. I was like, oh God, I better remember what I've done. I've done here because <laughs> I'm, I'm the I, same I, way. No, 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 no. I've moved on to other things, right? So I'm like, I'm forgetting stuff. So anyway, so there was a relaxation. There was a change in the policy. They made it easier to, I think they, they changed I think they said if, if you don't if your if your borehole and tube well is below a certain size and dimension, you don't need a permit anymore. And they offered a one-time capital cost subsidy on the connection. So it, it you know somebody has to come and connect your pump to the grid, and that is an expensive process. And they get and the and, and the government said there's a one-time capital cost subsidy on this. So you don't need the permit to drill the borehole and we'll give you a one-time capital cost subsidy that hooks your pump up to the grid. And so energy is still not subsidized. And so we were looking at whether, you know, so we essentially the study in, in, in JDS essentially compares farmers who have electric pumps to those who have diesel pumps to get a sense of does access to electricity because it is cheaper, it is a cheaper fuel than diesel, even though neither is subsidized. Does that help you, uh, you know, cultivate more? Because the, the policy justification for doing that was to allow people to cultivate more and earn more incomes. And so we looked at, does it do that? And we find, yes, of course it does, which makes complete economic sense. It does so, it leads to the in increase of water intensive crops. I think uh, yields of, um, I can't remember which it was, which season of rice changed. Please read the paper, don't quote me on this. And, and cultivated areas expand, which makes sense, which is exactly what we would expect because, you know, uh, under the previous regime, you didn't have enough water to be able to irrigate the land that you had, so you irrigated some part of it. 
And so when the costs of irrigation drop, you irrigate more. And so we see that. You end up cultivating more rice because it's a staple. If you can't sell it, you can at least e-store it and eat it. So it makes sense to do that. But we also find that the unintended positive consequence of this is that those who have electric pumps end up selling water. They, they, they sell water to, to a larger number of farmers who don't have those pumps. And they also sell water to relatively less well-off farmers than diesel owners do. Because again, just the costs are lower, right? So, because so the diesel owners can move it around, right? Right. And so it has these unintended uh, static pro-poor effects, let's put it that way. Over the long term, we don't, you know, as groundwater levels may fall, depending upon what's happening, you know, you, you might you know, it might just get get more expensive to irrigate, and over time, you know, maybe those who are buying water may not be able to 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 afford purchasing water. So we don't know what will happen over the long term, but in the short term, at least, having you know that 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 policy that policy change essentially, which allowed farmers to uh, uh, install electric pumps, it's not only benefiting them, but it's also sort of enabling the the provision of irrigation services to those who don't necessarily have their own pump either, which is what was needed in, in, in the case of Bengal, because there was, it was, it was so firm and rigid that it, it, it was more rigid and firm than what it needed to be. And so the relaxation of the policy was needed and it did end up producing the effects that we hoped for, along with these, you know, unintended sort of pro-poor side effects, if you will. So that's okay. so the, so the, the connection to the grid allowed for a broader network of, of buyers to access that water. Yeah. So uh, people that's... who previously not afford to perhaps purchase water from diesel pump owners can afford to purchase water from electric pump owners. That's kind of what's going on there. Yeah. Okay. Well, I want to, uh, before moving on to our third act, I wanted to take up your uh, agenda around learning from failure, but I wanted to to shape that. And I'm not suggesting that what I'm about to talk about are failures, although you may... Um, Take the bait. <laughs> um, so I wanted to um, to move into. So we 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 alluded to this earlier. We've we've got uh, two well capitalism in two thousand two by Dubash, and then Tame the Anarchy in two thousand nine. I think um, by Tushar Shah, and and then if if there was a, a book around groundwater development now, just from an outsider's view. I would say the title is something like Bright Wells because it's all solar irrigation, right? And we, <laughs> and, and I'm going to take some of your own words just for the audience to understand what we're talking about. So we've talked about elect, electric, we've talked about diesel, and now solar. The revolution comes, and I've been tracking this for a little bit, also still trying to get my head around it. But but here are your words um, from the Food Policy article, I believe. At the same time, federal and state governments are also exploring how solar irrigation, which is being promoted to reduce the carbon footprint of agriculture can be implemented to provide incentives to farmers to reduce groundwater pumping. Since one of the challenges of switching farmers from fossil fuel to solar energy is that the marginal cost of pumping with solar is zero, connecting solar pumps to grids and paying farmers for generating electricity and evacuating it into the grid is viewed as a way of incentivizing desirable behaviors. Um, so what are we learning from solar irrigation in India? <laughs> Right. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's 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 a fascinating question, and there's quite a bit of work going on. You know, not just by me, but you know, colleagues of mine, folks that I work with, are are, are looking into this. I'm in the process right now of writing a synthesis piece, mm. 
or a flagship report that will come out next year from the water practice at the bank. Uh, and so, so my thoughts here are very much uh, drawing from the collective wisdom of a number of things that are going on here. So these are not just my, my thoughts. But again, this goes back to where we started, the power of theory, and why it's so important sometimes take a step back and think about theory. Because if theory tells you that, why would you expect this to happen? It's not likely to happen on the ground. And that's exactly what we're seeing happen out here. So in the defense of economics, here you go. So the claim that's being made, uh, there are a number of claims that are being made you know, for solar irrigation. First is that it's gonna sort of be, a, it can be a mitigation strategy. That if solar pumps replace diesel pumps and electric pumps, you know, uh, South Asia in general could be contributing towards mitigation of greenhouse gases. That's one claim. The second claim is uh, is 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 often around solar irrigation can be uh, you know used to expand energy use to those who don't have it. So the marginalized and low income households, etc. Those are the kind of the the, the two big claims that are being made. There are a bunch of other claims, but you know, just for the sake of brevity, we'll stick to these two. We don't have any evidence on any of those two. And the emerging evidence from a whole bunch of studies that we're doing, you know, colleagues of mine at the International Water Management Institute are doing, uh, there are folks at IFPRI who are doing this. Nick Brozovic and his, his, his colleagues at Nebraska are looking at this in Africa. But let's talk about Let's talk about South Asia, um, um, you know, since we're fo focusing on India and South Asia. The early emerging evidence suggests there's no reason to believe either of those two is strictly true. So think about the context in which this is happening, right? So first is there's no one way to solarize. You can give people individual pumps that they simply use. They're not connected to the grid or anything, and they just use that in order to be able to irrigate. And what we and I think what typically tends to happen is if you're already using a fossil fuel pump and you get access to such a pump, you just end up expanding net energy use, uh, and that makes sense, right? Because we're operating with a pop in a, in a population that is probably using much less energy than it would like to because they can't afford to. So the minute you give them a technology where the cost of pumping is zero, people say I could irrigate this one little plot with my diesel pump, but diesel's expensive. I can't irrigate more plots. Now I have a second pump, which, you know, doesn't have any cost of pumping. Let me irrigate my second plot. The other problem with solar is it's not a mobile technology. So a diesel pump, if you have one pump, you could technically pick it up, move it around and irrigate different plots, which are not contiguous. You can't do that with solar. So you lose that mobility. So that's one way to do solar, individual pumps without being connected to the grid. These are off, what they call off-grid pumps or off-grid technologies. Then you have the, you know, the other ones, which are these, these solar panels, which, and there is a pump, and the idea is one of net metering. So the pump is connected to the grid, the solar panel is connected to the grid, and there is some net metering going on. So you get a bill at the end of the month that says, this is the energy you use, this is the energy you produced, and you know this is your bill. And so, whether that connecting the pump to the grid and giving farmer that farmers that incentive to sort of sell electricity back to the grid rather than pump, does that actually help with reductions in pumping? To be determined. We don't know. Part of the issue, reason why we don't know is 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 because what you really need is consumption electricity consumption data at the feeder level, in order to be able to analyze that. 
uh, or you need to implement a large sample survey where you look at people's bills, et cetera. But the problem there is that, you know, who, who do you compare it to? What's your control group going to be? Because if you're not in this, in this kind of scheme, the chances are you might not be metered at all. So there is no way to, you may not be able to, you may have electricity readings for this group, but not for this group. So what do you compare that to? Mm. So there are measurement issues here at the field level and at, at a higher level of aggregation, which is the subfeeder level, that data needs to come from the government, which is always difficult to get to. But there is no reason necessarily to believe that just because you have a grid-connected pump, you will end up pumping less. You might actually end up expanding cultivated area because now you can afford to irrigate other things that normally you couldn't afford to irrigate. And say if you end up growing a highly profitable crop, what you get from cultivating that highly profitable crop may be so profitable that you'd rather pay for that extra energy that you're using, right? So there is no reason to believe that you will end up reducing uh, your electricity use just because just because you are now connected to the grid. That relies on the assumption that the farmer does not make any other changes. So you were cultivating this size of land, growing a particular crop. You continue doing exactly that. And so now I can sell all this electricity to the grid. But that doesn't happen. The minute there's a technology disruption, cultivated area changes, crop choice changes, and some early work that I think a colleague of mine was doing before she, she, she left, uh, Imi suggests that that's what's happening in South Gujarat, that farmers who, are, who have these grid-connected pumps are actually changing crops and do, you know, growing more profitable crops, which often are more water-intensive crops. Mm -hmm. So there's no reason to believe that you know you, you end up pumping less or using less electricity just because you're connected to the grid. The margins of adjustment are different. And what about the declining costs of solar and the pro-poor story? Like the same experience you mentioned with the uh, West Bengal electric grid, is that happening yeah. with solar? Or do so one thing we don't know is, is the introduction of solar energy, is it going to disrupt these informal groundwater markets? We just don't know that. Mm. And there's good reasons to believe you might, right? If you have a grid-connected pump now, so one, you have... Uh, a technology which gives you which which where you don't have to pay for you know the energy of irrigating you might change your own behavior right because you might say i'll cultivate more i'll cultivate something different and there's only so many hours you can pump using solar and like diesel where you can even pump at night or electricity where you can pump at night solar doesn't allow you to do that right and so um unless it's connected to the grid in which case that's different um and then you could you may end up pricing your irrigation service that you offer to somebody else differently because now there is this other way to earn money. Or you may your ability to be able to provide water to others may reduce, you know, because the ability to pull out water through solar versus a diesel pump, just the head of water that comes out is different. The rate at which water comes out is different. So we don't really know how solar technology might disrupt these informal water markets. That's another, and that, that's going to have welfare, welfare implications, right? Because even in, even in cases where solar is sort of, so for example, in Gujarat, the scheme is you give up your diesel pump for solar. So there is some mitigation happening in that case, right? Because you have to give up your diesel pump in order to be able to do that. But what about those who are buying water from who used to be a diesel pump owner first? what's happening to them. So we don't know what the welfare stories there are. And I think that needs to be understood better and studied better. Uh, and finally, 
uh, the issue of is is solar technology a way to you know extend access to the poor? If it's disrupting informal markets, we don't know. But if you look at who's getting solar pumps, these typically tend to be better off farmers, larger farmers, and why? If it's a grid-connected solar pump, you need space for those massive panels. So you need to have land in order to be able to put those on your field, right? And that's automatically going to be larger farmers. And if it happens to be these individual off-grid pumps, then you need to apply for them. And you know, people typically of higher social and economic status end up being able to access the application and the process, and you know, they end up being able to it's easier for them to apply for it. It's easier for them to get to meet all the requirements that are needed in order to be able to eligible to apply for it as well. So, and that's some emerging research there as well. So all in all, and there is, I think there's one study that's come out of Maharashtra. I can't remember who the author is, but they, they, they look at, because again, Maharashtra is very aggressively developing uh, solar irrigation as well. And they study it and they, they find that it may not necessarily even be the most cost-effective way to reduce greenhouse gases in because just the transaction costs of doing this are so high, mm-hmm. right? Connecting pumps to the grid, which means now the grid is going to have renewable and non-renewable energy. The minute the sun goes down and you know the renewable part of it drops, there's a drop in voltage, the grid breaks down. There are engineering issues around it, which arguably can be fixed, but just doing it is expensive and it's not the easiest thing. And so, you know, so these grid connected solar pumps may not be the sort of, you know, sensible way to do this. There may be other ways to do this. For example, you could just think of completely solarizing the grid, right? You could just have solar panels that power up the grid and then you you know you don't really get into this business of giving each farmer making each farmer a producer of solar energy and a consumer of energy too so you know so there are i think there's a lot of work that needs to be done there that to to look at you know what might be a more practical way to do it hmm. so it, all in all is solar energy a mitigation strategy not necessarily i'm not saying it isn't but not necessarily so it may not be, and it very much depends upon, even in places where you end up, you know, giving up the diesel pump, end up putting more area under agriculture, by definition, you, you've released carbon from the soil just by cultivating, right? So we don't really know how this all adds up at the end of the day. So, you know, I think there's a lot of, again, what are the risks? What are the unintended consequences? Why may this not work the way we think we do? I think these lessons are going to be really important because I think these have universal, they have larger, you know, I think you can take these lessons and abstract to other places as well. So I think that's the- You just led the the trail of crumbs exactly where I want to go, but I want to leave an Easter egg for those who've made it that far. And that is uh, for the institutional scholars and those using the institutional analysis and development framework. I mean, if it's not being done already, and I imagine it would be by someone, this is a place that's ripe for- um, uh, examining these networks of adjacent action situations, the kind of nexus issues um, yeah. that uh, understand how externalities flow through these complex systems and um, affect the way we design and evaluate policies. So, so I mean, uh, DMs on LinkedIn are open. <laughs> um, so you mentioned that there's a lot of lessons that can go beyond this area. And before we move to our third act, uh, and I'm, so I'm not only asking for a kind of quick hit on this question, is the world is and has been uh, learning from and watching uh, the experience in India closely, and yeah. nowhere more so now than Africa. You mentioned Nick Brachevic's work there. There have been a number of studies, um, I think increasing sense that that Africa is on the cusp of its version of this revolution um, of groundwater development, focusing a lot on India. 
sometimes as a success story or sometimes as uh, learning from failure. So what are the big lessons uh, that should be taken from the Indian experience as Africa uh, continues its path in groundwater development and poverty uh, alleviation? I think it's very hard to extrapolate experiences from Asia into Africa simply because I think the history has been so different. In this particular case, I would I would, I would be careful about doing that. Mm. Uh, you know, Nepal, Pakistan, Bangladesh, India, we can they can learn from each other potentially lessons from Central Asia simply because there's been such a long history of irrigated agriculture in these countries, right? But not in Africa. But very quickly, because I know we need to move on to other things, the thing to worry about expanding irrigated agriculture in Africa is, is it going to lead to increases in conflict in these systems, right? Because these are agro-pastoral systems. And the one thing about bringing in irrigated agriculture is land gets fenced off, it, it prevents herds from moving, it encroaches into grazing grounds. And so it has implications for, for communities that are mostly pastoralists. And that's increasingly becoming a problem. So we're noticing that, especially in, all, you know, in Niger, in Kenya, where irrigated agriculture where attempts are being made, that's a major problem. Mm. So how do you uh, handle this conflict over land in an environment where populations are rapidly increasing, per capita availability of land is falling, but these are also countries where there's a lot of food insecurity, right? So I think that needs to be thought through because just that whole agro-pastoral system just makes it very hard to think about expanding and irrigated agriculture. Yeah, it's great insight and also reinforces an observation a colleague from Australia, Daniel Connell, once made that by learning from different systems, you get to know your own better. And I think that's a you know key insight around um, how context will affect um, the path uh, groundwater development and irrigation development and, and parts of Africa. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to, to kind of zoom out now and the final moments um, because we have a very diverse uh, audience, including a number of early career researchers and many of them, not unlike us 10 years ago, let's say, will be asking, well, uh, I want to work on uh, these really fundamental challenges, and I want to do it in a, an applied, challenge-driven way at places like AMI, the Inter- International Water Management Institute, or at the World Bank. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience working in these kinds of organizations and any advice you'd have for those uh, who are, are working in research, early uh, stage researchers uh, interested in breaking through and, and following that kind of path? I think, yes. I think the CGIR is a nice space to, uh, you know, if you're really interested in doing research, but doing it in a very practical manner and how it kind of moves dialogue and process on the ground, I think the CGIR is a great place to do that. There aren't very many places to be able to do that kind of work. The CG is the only one that really comes to mind. Uh, but then again, I mean, you know, I mean, I think even. Why don't you even tell me? Tell us about your specific experience. How did you break through? What was your? So I was one of those strange people who sort of, you know, I, I when I was graduating, I I knew I wanted to do research, but I didn't want to be in academia. So mm. uh, so there were very few places that I could actually apply to, because mm. it's, it's it's a very narrow sort of niche, you know, of wanting to do rigorous research and yet being able to influence policy and practice. And the CG is really one of the only spaces where that happens. It's the CG or it's one of the development banks. And it depends, again, what part of the development banks you join, especially early career. And I can talk a little bit about that too. So I kind of applied to 
two jobs in the CGIAR, I got both and I joined EMI. So unlike most economists who end up applying to hundreds of jobs in the market, I didn't do that at all. So I kind of went very much against what your you know, advisor would tell you is the strategic thing to do. So I was being very non-strategic, actually. And I got got both jobs and I decided to join EMI and I joined as a postdoc. And uh, when I left EMI, I was heading the the global research group in economics when I left. And to me, I, I've always sort of had this, and, and the CG is nice because it does allow you quite a bit of intellectual freedom, I think, to be able to ask some really specific questions on the ground. I'm a, I'm a big supporter and a sort of a champion of the CGIR. Um, I have very fond feelings about it. Anyway, so um, kind of, you know, I was like, this is the kind of work I want to do. I want to be able to ask these practical questions, but I want to be able to do them rigorously. So at one level, if you look at my CV, it's very academic. <laughs> it's, got, it's very academic, but every piece of work that I've done has actually been used to inform policy and practice on the ground. Mm. And then I joined the bank in the early part of this year and it was one of those, you know, mid plus career moves, I guess. I mean, and, and also because I think I, you know, after a point in time, it's nice to go and to be able to work elsewhere. And so, and, and of course the bank, it's sort of a, it, it is a different organization. Its primary job is to get things moving on the ground. And then it's really about how do you, you know, what do you need to do on the analytical side or the research side on the operational side of the bank, because there is a pure research side of the bank, but that works very much like academia and doesn't work very differently than that. The rest of the bank is all operational. And the operational part of the bank, the emphasis is really on creating these global public goods, uh, making sure you're, you know, mobilizing either money from those who invest in the bank to those who use the money at the other end of the bank. Uh, but often, much of that does happen through analytics and research, etc. And so I'm glad I joined the bank later in my career, because I think I come in with a very different experience and a different view of the world. And that kind of allows me to poke and prod and you know, kind of take things in different directions here at the bank as well. I, I think it's much harder to do that if you join the bank early on in your career, because it's it, it's a great it's a, it's it's a great organization, but it's also a very complex organization, and navigating your way through it is not not necessarily the easiest. To me, I've just I've had the luxury of being able to kind of follow my interests, and I've been fortunate enough to have been given the opportunities to do what I wanted to do and even more fortunate to discover that what I thought I would like I do like and there's a lot of serendipity in all of this I, I don't want to necessarily say that you know I had some grand plan because I didn't to be honest with you it, I think I was just sort of capitalizing on the opportunities that I've seen yeah. and then I think just personality wise I'm one of those you know I, I kind of like to think freely um <laughs> I'm not easily institutionalized. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I actually have a term for this. I'm going to be uh, developing around free range thinkers. I thought, yeah, but I'm not disruptive. I'm not a dis I'm not a. I'm not a bad disruptor. But uh, I, yeah, I just creative right. and broad thinking about complex issues, right? I mean, that's it. So but I want to. I want to summarize for the early career researchers. Here's what I heard: uh, ignore the advice of your supervisor. <laughs> no, 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 I didn't mean that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I actually think a healthy bit of irreverence and kind of uh, self-awareness is really important because there is a dominant path. But the second thing that I want to say, and I'm not putting these words in your mouth, but I think it's important for those on the line to, to be hearing uh, this is that, you know, you might have a picture of uh, a CGIR economist or a World Bank economist. And I hope that um, the experience, the stories, the insights that you've shared have shown that, it, that there are multidimensional 
complex um, and diverse ways of, of working in these spaces. So even though there are some limitations, complexities that you allude to, um, that we should all keep a, a kind of open and broad mind when we think about these spaces because they are collections of people and we are all constrained. It's not, you know, just unique to specific organizations with certain kinds of legacies and reputations that people kind of um, have a, a stigma around. Agreed. And I think the one thing I would tell everybody whose early career is, you know, talk to your colleagues, talk to folks, talk to people who do different things than you, uh, read up on stuff. Soft skills are really important. The, I mean, and this is no offense to PhD programs, but PhD programs, you know, they, they, they teach you methods and theory. And, and most PhD programs will train you to go into academia, right? And so, but the point is, you know, there are all these lovely soft skills that you need, including in academia. I mean, it's, it's yeah, you could maybe survive being a jerk in academia better than in any other profession. But even in academia, if you're a nice person, it helps you, including in your research. Niceness matters everywhere. So, so you know, how do you, how do you, you know, put forth your points? How do you negotiate? How do you uh, agree to disagree? Uh, how do you present your ideas? You know, these are all good, good things to develop. And the best way to develop them is with your peers, you know, um, go out, get a, get a beer every Friday night and, you know, toss ideas around and learn how to sort of, you know, think on your feet. There's a lot of thinking on your feet that happens, especially in non-academic settings, because you have to be a bit opportunistic about it. And I think it's people who can think quickly on their feet that end up, you know, kind of, wing, you know, you've got to wing it at, at one level. There's a lot, there's a quite fair bit of winging that's happening. So there's a bit of a personality thing too. And yeah, I mean, a lot of these non-academic organizations, not the, not the bank, but the CGIR, they're, they're all about, I mean, you have to raise your money, including your own salaries. So that's the, uh, that's the thing that people don't tell you and it's not as daunting as you as people might make it out to be but that is the reality of it and and but it also allows you to kind of you know do your research and take it in places that you that you want and and it's a great way to influence policy because somebody's paying you to do it and they're paying you to do it for a reason so so you know so it's a great way to affect you know to move policy and to get to the decision maker because they're like help us figure this out and you figure it out and it gets done so i would think of it as an opportunity and not as something to get sort of intimidated by but you know, again, academia doesn't teach you that. Those are some of the things that, that you don't want to think about. And so, so if you're thinking of doing that kind of stuff, go write a grant with somebody or do an internship. I mean, or, or get your advisor to contact somebody in any of these organizations and see if the three of you can work on a paper together so that you get a sense of what these organizations are. You could maybe visit for a month and write part of your paper on site somewhere, right? I mean... Great. I mean, yeah. So now Dustin, you're going to get slammed with all kinds of requests. <laughs> See how cleverly I tossed this back on you. <laughs> Thinking quickly on your feet. You've done it. Well done. Um, no, that was brilliant. I really loved it. I wanted to, to before closing, just ask you um, if there's anything else that you wanted to share that we haven't asked or talked about that you wanted to leave the group with. I, mean, I think we're living in, you know, there's just so many great questions to ask about, sort of poverty, distribution, in, you know, inclusion, including, by the way, busting myths to come back to sort of, you know, your camp of things. You know, this whole idea that community management is somehow the best way to manage natural resources. Mm. Quickly give you an example, right? So Nepal is thinking about, has had a very successful history of community management of forests. And they're thinking, of, thinking about now turning more forests back to communities, which makes sense given the history. The challenge, though, is there's migration. Hard, there's hardly anybody around. And in fact, if you look at some work, which has come out, I think in 2020, 2021 and world development, where they map migration patterns to, 
to forest cover. And they actually show that the reason why forest cover is increased is because people have migrated. And, and that's one of the advantages of urbanization and globalization that, you know, you're, you know, the, the, the direct dependence on natural resource base goes down. However, if you're thinking of turning communities back to, for, you know, thinking, thinking of turning forests back to communities, if communities are not there, who's going to manage them? So, and, and so I think there are, these are some of the questions that we need to start thinking about critically, because I think a lot of this stuff about community management, et cetera, came out in the 60s, the 70s, where labor market movements were not what they are right now. And that disruption in labor markets happening because of globalization, a pandemic, war, climate change is really sort of the big disruptor. It's even making it hard to plan interventions. For example, how do you size a community water project when the population that's going to use it keeps varying season by season? How do you have a community managed resource when the people who use that resource itself changes season by season? So we really need to start thinking very critically for all of you who think about institutions, common property resource management, the role of community in managing these resources. The world has changed. So these solutions, which may have worked then, may not work right now. And so where do we go from here? What do we do? I don't have the answers, but these are some of the big questions that I'll leave you with. Thank you. Yeah, and I think a lot of the audience will be uh, responsive to that. I, I think there's been a, a, a long recognition that uh, community management can quickly become the next panacea, right? It's just a one size fits all. And also the implication that all of this interdependence interconnection mean that the exogenous needs to be endogenous and you we, we can't just assume that um that these communities are going to stay put so i will just say finally thank you so this was such a delight and i i'm so grateful and i believe that uh the the entire audience will, will share and thanking you for your time thank you dustin it's always a pleasure talking to you thanks for listening everyone you can find more episodes and blog entries on our website, incommon.org. The Incommon podcast is the official podcast for the International Association for the Study of the Commons, or IASC.